Hey everyone, welcome to Go Bold. My name is Jody Atariwala, and I'm your host. In our last episode, we introduced you to Major Ridge Flick, callsign Kelso, a United States Air Force fighter pilot who flies the A-10 Warthog. Major Flick has been kind to share his experiences and insight on flying the A-10C, which is the preeminent close air support aircraft for the United States Air Force. We spoke with Major Flick when he was a weapons instructor pilot at the highly respected Air Force Weapons School, which is situated at Nellis Air Force Base in Nevada. That position means that Major Flick is at the forefront of the operational tactics that make the Warthog virtually unmatched in the air-to-surface role. In this episode, we continue our chat with Major Flick as he shares his experiences of flying the A-10 in combat in Iraq, Syria, and Afghanistan. We discuss what makes the Warthog so impressive and so lethal, and you'll hear it from his first-hand perspective, so I think you'll really enjoy this conversation. We also discuss some of the things that could enhance the capabilities of the A-10 even further. It's a fun chat, so let's get at it. Hey, Kelso, I'm so glad to be back in touch with you. How, how have you been since, uh, since we last chat? I've been good. Took uh, a bunch of leave, uh, and now I am back at the Grindstone and getting ready for a weapons and tactics conference. Nice. Is that local in Vegas? or? Uh, kind of. It's going to be part local and part virtual. It's run here at Nellis Air Force Base, uh, but we're going to have participants from all around the globe virtually. Very cool. Very cool. All, all Air Force folks are like people in industry as well. Um, the working group that I'm running is for air to ground and ground to air target transfer. I expanded that out to be air to surface and surface to air target transfer. So I'm roping in some folks from the Navy, the Army. Uh, I'm trying to rope in some Space Force people. And basically the, the idea is how do we take targeting information from any sensor and get it to the proper shooter? Right. Well, that's cool. That's that's kind of part and parcel of this whole um, JAD C2. It is. Yes. Yeah, Joint All Domain Command and Control. It is part and parcel. Yeah, right on. Oh, that's cool. Well, I, I think I think it's neat that you'll uh, that you'll try to rope in some Navy guys because, um, you know, uh, even though the A10 doesn't really uh, often play in the maritime domain, it's not like you guys couldn't and. Um, and I think it's good to have skills across the board anyway. So, Yeah, that's one of our lesser-known mission sets. We are uh, we train to maritime air support whenever we can, but it, like you said, it's always hard to rope in the Navy. They're, they stay very busy, and they're out on the coasts. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly, exactly, yeah. Yeah, it's not, not easy to work with them when you're landlocked, is it? <laughs> no, but uh, we, uh, we train to that problem a lot. Uh, we train to the fighting off the fast attack craft and the infiltration craft. Um, And every once in a while, we get a good opportunity to go down to Eglin Air Force Base where they can get some remotely piloted boats, uh, and we will go fight against them and see, you know, they'll send waves and waves of them at us, and we see how many we can take down. That's awesome. Are they they pretty much like uh, rigid hull inflatables, or or are they – uh, a little bit more significant than that. Th- they've got to be attributable, right? Like, I mean, you're obviously taking them out, so. 
Uh, we do a mix for the exercises. So they have some that are attributable uh, that will do testing of different weapons against them to see, you know, where do you need to hit these things? There are some that are more like, you know, Jim Bob's boat. We pay a guy that's got a speedboat. I don't know how much per hour. Uh, and then we have them all go out there and they drive in formation and they run uh, some of the adversary tactics so we can train against it. Okay, cool. Nice. And that one, we'll just, we'll just stay in training mode so that, we, <laughs> so that the local guy with the speedboat doesn't have to eat 30 mil. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that could be a bad day. But uh, but otherwise, man, what a great way for them to spend a day on the water and having A-10s fly around. Yeah, it's, uh, it's been a pretty fun exercise for the guys that have gotten a chance to go. Oh, that's awesome. So. Well, so last time we spoke, we, we spoke a lot about the A-10 and some of the stuff that you're doing and a bit of your career. But uh, we were going to jump into combat and your experience with the A-10C. And part of that, you know, obviously, I, I like to get the personal perspectives. So, um Tell me the first time you deployed, uh, Kelso. And and I would, I guess one of the other aspects to it is, you know, um, in training, you, as you just mentioned, you go to Eglin Air Force Base, you go to other places. Um, did you deploy abroad anywhere uh, in a training capacity uh, before actually going into a combat theater? Or I did. When I was a lieutenant and young captain in Korea, um, we did training deployments to red flag alaska i did two of those oh cool uh, got the unique opportunity to fly an a10 across the pacific which is a very long flight yeah, yeah. <laughs> we also did two exercises out to the philippines uh, which is an exercise called balakatan um and that one was more combat search and rescue focused sure um and then there was a little bit of navy flavor in that one where we did some part test training with some of the amphibious carrier craft, um, working on how we can protect those guys if they need to go do landings. Very cool. Okay, so you got to tell me about going across the Pacific because that's got to. There's got to be a lot. Obviously, logistically, it's it's um, it's an interesting a nightmare. challenge. <laughs> it's a nightmare. <laughs> I was going to say challenge, yeah. but nightmare works. <laughs> it's a nightmare. It's um, so it was in a. Starting in Korea, we had to fly with two external fuel tanks. Mm -hmm. And when we load two external fuel tanks entirely up, it's too much weight to taxi the aircraft around. So you actually take off with only one of the external fuel tanks filled up and the other one's empty. and you can't have them be partially full at takeoff because the fuel will slosh around and mess up the CG. So they either have to be completely full or completely empty okay. when you take off. Okay. So we take off with the external fuel tanks out of Korea, and we go uh, single leg to, I believe it was Misawa. I think we put down at Misawa mm-hmm. in Japan. Um, and then we were waiting on the tanker. Uh, and it's the tankers are all controlled through a different entity than our squadron. So we're kind of at the the beck and call of when the tanker's available. Sure. And those guys have global taskings going on. So if there's something popping off somewhere else, you could get stuck. So we ended up stuck in Japan for like five days. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. Which was hilarious because we have essentially no training opportunities available there, nothing lined up. So me and a bunch of my buddies got on trains and did our best uh, to find people that spoke English. And we got our way down to Mount Fuji and climbed Mount Fuji in Japan. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> 
and then got on the trains on the way back up to Misawa, got in. We had a day to get the mission planning done. Um, one of the representatives uh, for a company that does like the long haul planning for fighter squadrons mm -hmm. gives us a brief on, hey, here's all the air refueling points. Here's where you're meeting the tankers. Um, and I think we were taking 12 aircraft, so we had two six-ship cells. And I was a young wingman, so I was like number six, I think. I was like the lowest qualified guy in the formation. But we take off out of Japan, and the first thing you have to do is get tank checks and make sure that your airplane will take gas off the tanker. Okay. So about an hour into the flight, we rejoin with the tanker, and then everybody goes across the boom and takes two to 3,000 pounds of gas. Um, and at that point you're trying to get, you know, topped off, uh, mm -hmm. which when you've got two external fuel tanks, we're carrying like 18,000 pounds of fuel. Wow. So not a, not a very, uh, <laughs> maneuverable A-10 when you've got that <laughs> much gas hanging off the wings. But we, uh, we all take our turns across the boom and I as number six, am just about to get on the tanker and there's this huge front out in front of us. And right as I'm approaching the boom, we go into the weather and my entire glare shield ice is over. Oh no. So I've got ice across the entire canopy. I can't see the boom. I can only see the tanker out the top of my aircraft. So I get all the anti-icing equipment on, I descend and I'm flying, looking straight out the top of my airplane at the belly of the tanker while all the other A-10s are glued on the tanker's wings in close formation. So you've got three airplanes off the left side, two airplanes off the right side, and me under the belly of the tanker as we go into this ice. Um, and my squadron commander is my flight lead. He's like, hey, Kelso, are you doing all right down there? I'm like, I can't see out the front right now. I'm waiting on the anti-ice to give me a little portal that I can see through. Mm -hmm. So sure enough, the glare shield anti-ice kicks in after about 10 minutes. Oh, wow. That and I'm like, I'm like five minutes away from being bingo field. I have to turn around and go back to Misawa. Um, oh, when I finally get it, like, uh, I would call it probably about a four inch wide circle okay. <laughs> that I can see through on the front of the airplane. Okay. Uh, the other unique part of the A-10 is our air refueling doors on the nose. Right. Yeah. So most of the other guys, they are used to flying under the tanker and have the boom go in kind of behind their shoulder. Mm -hmm. uh, but I needed that little four inch hole so I could actually see where the boom was as I approach it. So I get that four inch hole, I get on the boom get gas. Uh, and once I'm topped off, I get to rejoin in close and we're stuck for like an hour and a half in close formation, flying through icing and turbulence and all kinds of stuff. Oh, geez. Um, which was a nice way to wake you up and make you realize this is going to be a, a very, very real sortie. No kidding. Uh, but that early in the sortie, you know, you're going to be worn out by the time you get to Alaska. Oh, um, I'm sure. How but it ends up being, I think we end up doing seven air refuelings and it's mostly because we have to keep a fuel state that's high enough to divert in case either the tanker breaks or somebody, you know, breaks the boom, whatever your airplane stops taking fuel. You got to keep a really high fuel state because there's not a lot of divert bases between Japan and Alaska. <laughs> yeah. I, and if you want to look into one, look at Shemya. Uh, I think it's like 330 days a year where the weather is broken at 500 feet. Oh, wow. Terrible weather. Uh, it's like the only reason it exists is to plant a big radar out there in the Pacific to look for airplanes coming eastbound across the ocean. But it, uh, that was the primary divert for I don't even know how many miles. It was like 1,500 miles. That was the primary divert. Wow. Wow. <laughs> you know, once, you're, once you're 800 miles away from it, and then once you're 700 miles past it. 
And it's the only place to go if you have a problem. Yeah, so, you're kind of committed. Little bit of a, yeah, a little bit of a harrowing flight, but uh, it ended up being an 11 and a half hour mission to get from Japan to Alaska. Uh, and it was hilarious because I think it was the third aircraft to land. He lands and has a hydraulic issue, a bunch of hydraulic fluid spews out all over the runway. He's got a taxi clear. We have to convince the airfield management folks that the rest of us are good to land behind them. They're like, what about the hydraulic fluid? Dude, it's an A-10. We <laughs> land on dirt lakes. Yeah. It'll be fine. Um, so I, they, they, tow him, they tow him off the runway and then the rest of us land after holding for about 20 minutes. Uh, but I was, it's a, it's a serious haul and a lot of air refueling to keep the fuel state really high as we're going over the ocean. Yeah. I, I spoke with a, with a Lieutenant Colonel with the Royal Canadian Air Force who, uh, who did a, uh, basically a, a flight across the, the Atlantic. And he was telling me the same thing. He said, you know, you have to just, you're constantly tanking. And he goes, it's not that you necessarily, it's not like you're running out of fuel, but you just want to keep a high fuel state. Cause if anything happens, you need to get your, yep. your divert. So yeah, it, uh, it's common across any, any platform. It seems like. Yeah, it really is. Uh, you know, most fighters you're looking somewhere between probably 700 and 1200 miles of range. Um, maybe some longer range on some of the super cruise planes, but that's not enough to get across the ocean. No. <laughs> without keeping an eye Yeah. So, yeah, no kidding. Now, if, you want, if you want some good stories on it, um, the book Warthog, early on in that book, yep. it, the guys talk about A-10A models and them having to cross the Atlantic on their way to Saudi. Mm. Uh, and that's a really good read, and it gives you a really good insight into some of the problems you can run into trying to tank across the, the Atlantic. Oh, I'm sure it's well, you know, like, I mean, you've got the story right there yourself with that icing. And um, it, so it, it actually makes me think, though, it, you know, if you could see out the top, this is just me kind of spitballing it. If you could see out the top of your your canopy and you can see the the tanker above you, um, isn't it the boom operator's job to kind of get the boom to your receptacle and plug in? Or do you have to be? Because he's maneuvering the boom, you just have to line up, correct? Uh, it kind of depends on the boom operator. Oh. So as an A-10 <laughs> with where our receptacle is, mm-hmm. I prefer the boom operator to just leave the boom there and I'll fly my way onto it. Um, because I can see the receptacle, I can see the boom, I can I can make that happen. Uh, with the either younger boom operators or the guys a little more sketched out by it. When we try to do that, a lot of times they'll pull the boom back because they want to be the ones to initiate the contact. Um, but with only being able to see out the top, I couldn't be in the right position for the boom operator to even get the boom into my AR door. Uh, okay. um, so I had to wait till I had a little bit of defog and then slowly back up and then get that little portal into a place where I could see the boom. And then I parked it a couple feet away and let him finish the job. So Okay. Well, I got punched in the face. I let him punch me in the face. Book <laughs> the boom. Uh, that's so cool. So one of the other things about flying across the water is, um, and clearly the Pacific is not a warm ocean. So uh, uh, I guess full immersion suits as you're flying across. Yep, flying in anti-exposure suits the whole time. Yeah, that can't um, be fun. You know, if people aren't familiar with it, that is a suit that basically seals off your body at the wrists and the neck uh, and everything else is locked into a watertight 
it's kind of like a bodysuit you would wear for scuba diving, except it's no kidding, completely watertight at the wrists and neck, mm-hmm. um, which is not comfortable. Um, and it also makes it really interesting if you need to use the restroom on that 11 and a half hour flight. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, that, that poses a bit of a problem, doesn't it? It sure does. It is a bit of a problem. Uh, and it, it's, a, it's like the most scary zipper in the world on that anti-exposure suit. <laughs> yeah, I've heard that story before from a few people. <laughs> oh, man, I tell you, you know, it, and, and it's one of those things. Like, I mean, you just have to kind of plan properly. So knowing that you've got an 11, you know, hour thereabouts mission ahead, how would you prepare for that? Would you eat? I had, <laughs> yeah, I had two 32 ounce Gatorades. I had a Camelback filled with water. I had two foot long subs from Subway. Uh, I think I had a bunch of chewing gum. I had all kinds of stuff. I had books on tape and I brought little earbuds so that I could pull out one of my access earplugs and put an earbud in and listen to a book on tape. <laughs> awesome. Um, yeah, it was do a lot of prep for that. And then the lieutenants are usually charged with uh, providing entertainment. So they'll usually provide some kind of bingo card. So things that you want to try to find on your way across. I think we had, you know, shipping, Chinese shipping boats was on there. Um, what was some of the other stuff? Radars on Shemya. Uh, all kinds of things that we were looking for while we're flying across just to keep people's minds busy. You know, so, so Soup told me this story of, um, now I don't know how early in his career, uh, well, it was clearly early in his career, but he goes, he was telling me that on one of the radios, you know, it was the job of, of like the most junior pilot to, you know, have music for the flight. And so pipe it through like, I guess, whatever uh, local radio that you guys would all talk to each other with. And if I remember his story correctly, he was telling me that, you, but you got to keep the button pressed down to transmit. And yeah. So I just laughed at him and I said, well, how long did it take for you to figure out, you know, that you could have taped the button down instead of holding it down? And I think he said about three hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's about right. I think most of those guys get the brief now to take a piece of electrical tape with them. Yeah, right. Uh, I love that story. You know, <laughs> I'm just thinking that you know you're sitting there holding this damn thing down and going, my my thumb's getting really tired. Or <laughs> oh yeah, they're probably switching hands. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Switching um, fingers, hands. <laughs> you know, those are the little stories that I think you know the little ones that just make you laugh are are kind of the ones that people would never think about. You know, you think it's a very serious business and it's it's professional, but at the same time. You know, if you're just going on a transit flight, that's all it is. You're probably quite bored. Yeah. And still people. People still need right. to be entertained. Right. People still want to have fun. So. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, so that was one of the longest ones or not longest, but, you know, obviously in a, a very long flight. Um of those deployments that you've gone to, I actually think it's kind of funny. You know, there you are stationed in Korea and you come back to the U.S. to train, um, in this case, Alaska. But uh, do, do any of those training events or exercises kind of um, stand out for any particular reason? Uh, I would say that the big ones that stand out were working with the Korean Air Force. Okay. Um, so every year we would do Pacific Thunder 
where we would get our Republic of Korea Air Force kind of partners involved because they had part of the charge of doing combat search and rescue. Hmm. So we would bring them in and it was really eye-opening seeing the difference in American individualistic culture mm-hmm. and a more collectivist culture that you have in Korea. Mm. Um, and what you'd see is they would send a representative to do some planning, but you couldn't make decisions with the representative. They would have to take all the information back. And as a group, they would decide on how many lines they were going to fly, which missions they were going to participate in. Um, and it's, it's just a very big difference in how we operate in America and we kind of try and give a lot of responsibility and give a lot of authority to the lower levels, mm-hmm. uh, vice in a more collectivist society, they are always about making sure that the group has a say and that the group is coming to a conclusion together. Hmm. Um, so it was eye opening to see that and to start to understand that, uh, and how it could apply in different situations moving forward in my career. And then I ended up seeing the same thing in Afghanistan, which we can get to later. Um, but then the exercise where I think I probably learned the most was at red flag, Alaska during that part of my career. Mm -hmm. Um, and then the weapon school integration phase is kind of like a, an even larger version of a red flag where I think those two, I learned the absolute most about how we take all of these different aircraft and all these different capabilities and you know, it's kind of like if you ever hear Bill Belichick say, or the Patriots say, do your job. Mm-hmm. It's a very much a do your job mentality. Uh, and the contracts that go into making sure that you doing your job applies to the other aircraft. And they understand that either you've done your job or you were unable to do your job and how that's going to change the flow of events in a, in a large force mission. That was probably the biggest kind of tactical learning I got was out of Red Flag Alaska at that point in my career. That's awesome. And you've participated in red flags at Nellis. Um, What do you see as the kernel difference between the two, um, if there is anything that that is markedly different between red flag Nellis versus red flag Alaska? Boy, that is a tough one. I I would say probably the biggest difference that I've noticed, and this is probably just because of my personal experiences of which red flags I went to, Mm But for me, Red Flag Alaska had a ton of coalition partners. So we were flying with the Japanese Self-Defense Force, and we were flying with the um, the Korean Air Force. I think they even may have had an Australian. Um, can't remember the aircraft, but their C two aircraft there. Oh yeah, uh, the wedge tail. Yeah, I think they had a wedge tail there for that year. Okay. Um, and then at Nellis, uh, every once in a while we have U.S. only red flags and my only Nellis red flag was a US only. So oh, it was, um, we were able to go to a higher classification level, uh, learn about things that I hadn't learned about at red flag, Alaska, just blue capabilities mostly, mm-hmm. but it wasn't as much of a, you know, coalition, uh, kind of partnership building mm-hmm. exercise. It was much more a deep dive on us force employment, uh, and starting to understand some of the unique capabilities that, we're bringing to the fight that, you know, nobody else can know about. Yeah, right on. That's super cool. Uh, it, it's it's kind of neat that you actually did uh, did that U.S. only one because it gives you two completely different perspectives. Yeah, it definitely gives a different perspective, um, especially as an A-10 guy. So, hmm. you know, as an A-10 guy, 
I'm not running around with all kinds of crazy clearances. Uh, right. But a lot of the a lot of the other people, you know, if you're flying an F-22 around, you probably know a lot more than an A-10 guy sure. about certain systems. So sure. we learn a ton by being able to interact with them in those higher classification spaces. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they get a chance to interact with us a lot more because it's not often that your A-10 guys and your F-22 guys are hanging out at the bar together. Right. <laughs> Yeah. And you're certainly not sitting next to each other at uh, the red flag debrief. That's right. Very rarely. (laughs) I think I told you about the RAF guy who went and intentionally sits down next to the Eagle guys. Yes. It's glorious. (laughs) Takes away the man. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Um, Yeah. so now let's segue over to going into combat for the first time. Like I me, mean, it's kind of neat that you've done some of those, um, you know, those exercises afar from your, your home station. Um, but tell me uh, when you actually deployed into combat theater and what was, what was that like for you uh, personally and professionally? Uh, for me, I deployed for the first time three months after I graduated weapon school and I was actually part of a, uh, a ripout team where my squadron had deployed in January of 2017. And then I was going to replace uh, one of my weapon school classmates had gone from January to March. Mm-hmm. Um, so he had already done kind of nine months away from home. And the plan was for me to kind of rip him out and I would take the last three and a half months. So I got six months of weapon school, three month break, three and a half months deployed. Um, but for me personally, it was, you know, like the Super Bowl. up to that point I hadn't deployed. I had been training like crazy. I had been, uh, honing my craft and it was the first chance to go out and do it for real and actually have significant consequences for doing the job well and doing the job poorly. Mm-hmm. So the, I'll never forget the first step that I had from the ops desk there at Inserlik. Um, the rest of the squadron had already been there for three months. So, you know, they had heard the step brief mm-hmm. 40 times at that point mm-hmm. and they're all, you know, whatever step brief doesn't matter. So they turned it into a big kind of step party. Okay. Uh, when I get to the ops desk and the lights are turned off, um, everybody is standing around with flashlights and there's a disco ball hanging from the middle of the ops room. Uh, and they start the step brief and there's, heavy metal rock music playing. They start the strobe lights. Uh, everybody's clapping and cheering and jamming on. And I'm like trying my hardest to hear everything in this step brief to make sure I've got everything squared away. Uh, flying with a guy that's already got, you know, 42 missions in the theater under his belt. So I was just nervous as heck. I mean, I think my heart rate spiked out at like 170 or something crazy. Uh, during that step. And at the end of the step brief, there's a ladder that goes into the ceiling that was behind me okay. uh, for like extra storage. Okay. In the step brief, I high five the top three. I turn around and one of the flight commanders is hanging upside down from the ladder, yelling in my face, attack. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, wow, this is out of control. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, <laughs> you, you you sure you're going into combat? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, going into combat. But uh, it's you know it's the support. That's the support system. Right. Everybody knows that we're going out for 
what's probably going to be an eight hour mission. They know that we're going to hang it out there. We're going to do the best we can for the ground forces and make sure that, you know, on our watch, all the friendly forces are going to be safe and we're going to take some enemy off the battlefield. And they were there to help kind of provide that last boost, that last bit of kind of additional courage uh, to go do the job the right way. So I love it. It was a super crazy experience. I still, you know, I get nervous thinking about it. I still get nervous thinking about it because it was that it's kind of like walking through the tunnel. I would imagine, you know, if you're mm-hmm. walking through the tunnel in the Super Bowl, mm-hmm. that's how it felt walking out of that ops room was just nothing but nerves and focus and anxiety uh, and excitement. Yeah. Um, and we get in the, get in the van, AFE drives us out to the jets and we're off to the races. Um, and that was for operation inherent resolve. So mostly flying missions over Iraq and Syria. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a wild fight against ISIS. Uh, just a very interesting battlefield um, the capabilities of the A-10C fully on display everywhere. We were taking that thing around. We were getting the job done. Uh, and the, the ground forces were making slow and steady progress. Uh, thanks to a lot of, you know, bombs, laser guided rockets and 30 millimeter, uh, AGM 65 Maverick missiles. We were using everything that we can carry, uh, with a few exceptions. Um, and it was just a, a real, beat down of ISIS for three and a half straight months. Uh, we finished out the Western half of Mosul during that time. So when I got out there, the, uh, Iraqis had already taken back East Mosul. Okay. Um, ISIS was pretty much holed up in the city center of West Mosul on the West side of the river. You know, all the bridges were blown out. Uh, so they didn't have a whole lot of ways to get out of town. Um, and the Iraqis uh, and the PMF, uh, which I think was actually like an Iranian support force that was in the area, hmm. those guys were uh, kind of slowly squeezing down on ISIS there in the western half of Mosul. Um, and we ended up finally getting the last bit of Mosul cleared out right at the end of the deployment. Uh, at the same time, we were flying missions to Syria, uh, and that was where the Syrian Democratic Forces were closing in on Raqqa. Oh, right. So that was another massive urban fight um isis crawling all through the city uh lots of vehicle-borne improvised explosive devices in both of those cities Mm -hmm. so that was one of the big things was being postured and ready at any moment to have to roll in and shoot a vehicle that was going to be a you know an ied going 30 or 40 miles an hour towards friendlies um and there were lots of pretty wild engagements from some of my partners in crime over there um, to include uh, one guy that had a, a three vehicle VBIED convoy driving straight through the open desert towards the Syrian democratic forces. Um, and the, the controller that he was working with didn't have any ISR in the area. So my buddy's trying to explain the situation to him. Uh, and it finally gets to the point where one of the vehicles has a, a premature detonation uh, and then one of them bugs out after that since they don't have their three vehicle convoy, but the third one keeps going. Okay. And he's trying to explain that to the controller. Uh, he finally gets the controller to understand what's going on. Uh, and the controller basically tells him like, you have more awareness of what's going on on the ground right now than I do, you know, do what's best. Mm-hmm. So uh, no clearance, no nine line, nothing. He just rolled in and took care of it. Um, 
and he stopped that vehicle about a hundred meters short of a, an outpost that the Syrian Democratic Forces had there. Uh, when they went out and cleared it, and sure enough, it was you know laced to the gills with explosives. Wow! Holy um, smokes! I mean, that's one example of some of the stuff we were getting into. Um, you also had a lot of rocket-propelled grenade teams that were holding up high up in buildings and shooting down at friendly forces as they advanced through the city. Mm-hmm. So we were using a lot of delay-fused 500-pound uh, munitions to try and knock those guys out of their uh, hidey holes. Um, we put some laser-guided munitions through windows to take out snipers. Um, we were just really tapping into every capability we had on the airplane to take care of those problems. Uh, but as far as the A-10C and some of the additional capability we got out of that, mm-hmm. um, the moving map was critical uh, for one particular mission. Uh, this is one that I hold dear to my heart because it was one of our young flight leads who I had put through his deployment spin-up. He was part of that rip-out team I mentioned. Okay. Um, and he was out over Raqqa, got a, a nine line from his controller, and he plots the coordinates on his moving map and every day about, you know, three hours, four hours before your takeoff, we had an army ground liaison officer uh, who was a captain in the army and he would update our drawing files with where all the friendly positions were. Mm-hmm. And he would just kind of draw a line that would be about 20 meters out in front of the furthest forward friendly forces. So, you know, in Raqqa, you had this kind of semicircle arc, that went around the city on the north side. Um, there weren't really any friendly south of the river. And it was after they had just busted into the eastern wall of, um, there was like a big old fort in Raqqa that the friendlies had just gotten through. And they had penetrated that wall and they had, one of their teams had advanced forward. So there's this weird finger on this drawing file. Um, and he plots the target grids and it's inside of that finger. So, you know, he plots it. And he asked the controller, he says, hey, you know, based on our our friendly force draw file, I'm showing this is these target grids are in friendly territory. Hmm. Uh, and the controller says, stand by, let me confirm with the uh, SDF commander. Okay. So he goes to do that. And the big problem here was that the weather was in a place where, and you know, we had a remotely piloted aircraft below the weather. And the plan that they had come up with was to drop a laser-guided bomb and have this remotely piloted aircraft lays it in. So he's just going to drop through the weather on the coordinates and have some other aircraft lays the bomb in for him. And the other aircraft is calling out what he's seeing. Um, and one of the things I had been teaching was if you have any ability to positively identify a target, you do it. Uh, if, if nobody's getting shot at and you don't need to drop right now, you've got some time figure out a way to get below the weather and see the target before you do anything. Right. So while he's getting confirmation with the ground commander, he's able to get himself a block below the weather. He comes below the weather and the uh, controller comes back and he says, Hey, ground commander's confirmed. He doesn't have any forces where these coordinates are. You're good to go. So he still has this kind of this weird feeling. Cause when he looks at the coordinates, he doesn't see anybody at the building the coordinates are on. Okay. So he gets he gets a laser handoff from the remotely piloted aircraft. So he has that aircraft lays, and now using an advanced targeting pod, we can have our pod go to where that laser energy is. So he puts in the code. He does a we call it a laser spot search, mm-hmm. and he gets the laser spot 
and it ends up being about a hundred meters off from where the coordinates were. It's still inside of that finger on his draw file, uh, which he can see where his targeting pod is looking on that moving map. So that's another kind of unique capability in the A10. Cool. Uh, and then he sees a couple guys up on the roof of a building, uh, smoking cigarettes. He sees a couple guys in the courtyard of the building. Um, and one of the things that we had been teaching was, you know, ISIS doesn't like to hang out on rooftops because that's where they know we can see them. Right. right. Uh, and the Syrian Democratic forces will get up on those rooftops and they'll use that as a, a position of advantage so that they can see what's coming. Sure. So he calls back to the controller. He's like, hey, I don't think this is right. Uh, I got a laser handoff. We've got guys on top of the building smoking cigarettes, kind of casual posture. And it still is plotting out inside of my drawing file. And he comes, ground Khmer comes back and says, my guys aren't over there. It's ISIS. Hmm. Uh, so he still is so convinced that he's got a friendly position in his targeting body. He says, hey, let me pass you these coordinates and then reconfirm with the ground command. Okay. So now that the coordinates have moved about 100 meters, he passes the JTAC the coordinates. The JTAC updates his plot. He goes to the ground commander and says, do you have anybody here? Ground commander says, yeah, that's my guys. Oh, geez. So cancel the nine line, never drops the bomb. Um, but it was one of those missions where it's, you know, we talk about it all the time that the A-10 brings a ton of firepower. But the more important part that we bring are the we're close air support experts. You know, we, we train to it every day. It's our primary mission set. And just the little hairs on the back of his neck with some good habit patterns uh the best thing he could have done that day was not drop a bomb and that's what he did um and we were actually able to get him a, a single event air medal for that because uh, he was getting a lot of pressure from the radio to drop the bomb uh, and he had the kind of gumption to say no this isn't the right thing to do i want to get some more information i want to make sure we've got this wired good for him that is awesome yep. You know, it's um, it speaks to it speaks to training, but it, you know, just like you said, it's it's all about experience and and following your gut. You know, um, yeah, it takes some gumption to to kind of hold your own and say, no, something's not right here. My spidey sense is tingling. Yep, it sure does, and it's it's the hardest thing to train to. You can't necessarily train people to that. Um, the way that we try and train them to it is by, you know, in training environments on ranges where there are no friendlies, uh, as guys are going through the upgrades, we'll try to trick them into targeting friendly positions on their upgrades. Yeah. You know, if at some point you trick somebody into targeting a friendly position and it's in training, we're not actually going to lose a friendly. Mm-hmm. That lesson sticks with them forever. Yeah. Right. That is a lesson they will never forget. Um, so that's one of the kind of unique parts of, when you're a close air support expert, that's something you're throwing into your missions and training. Uh, and it's something that, you know, we're constantly talking about how to positively identify the enemy, uh, how to plot the target and make sure that you've got friendly situational awareness. So it's interesting that you guys do that. And I think it's excellent that you do. Um, it makes sense because, you know, you want to, you you know, I, I guess the propensity is that, that you know, it, it, number one, you're professionals, but number two is, you know, you're in the job of, you know, putting ordnance on target as close air support. So, you know, but that should never be frivolous, right? It always has to be deliberate and thought out. And so I think it's awesome that you guys train it trained that way where you do give these challenging scenarios to people and 
and you want to make sure that they don't make bad mistakes. Hey folks, here is a message about our sponsor, Cubic Mission and Performance Solutions. The episode you're hearing today speaks about operational capabilities. Such capabilities come from the training that warfighters undertake to be the best they can be. Cubic supports military training by providing warfighters cutting-edge tools that are necessary for operational success. Cubic leads the way with highly precise tracking systems for aircraft and test missile ranges. This technology was adopted by militaries around the world and includes capabilities like air combat maneuvering instrumentation, which works in concert with Cubic's P5 combat training system pods. So important is this technology that it is embedded as an internal subsystem in the Joint Strike Fighter. Cubic is also a leading provider of advanced, live, virtual, constructive, and game-based training solutions for allied forces. Cubic has also developed SPEAR, a modern Department of Defense-approved technology stack that reduces cognitive burden through optimized displays and analytics of kinetic and non-kinetic data with weapons effects in multi-domain operations and LVC environments. SPEAR melds objective and subjective data with a time-synchronized real-time mission log and after-action reporting. This means the revolutionary SPEAR software allows warfighters to visualize operations throughout the mission training cycle or during combat operations, and this enables forces to understand multi-domain operations like never before. At all levels of combat preparation and execution, Cubic Solutions deliver real results. To learn more about them, please visit cubic.com. Now, let's get back to our chat. I was chatting with a lieutenant colonel who flies uh, F-16s up at Isleson uh, for one of the episodes of this podcast. And um, he was telling me that in the air-to-air fight, um, there was one time where he shot a simulated missile and basically shot at his CO. <laughs> and uh, the CO said, <laughs> the CO said, who are you shooting at over the air? And as soon as he said that, you know, the lieutenant colonel that was my guess was like, oh man, I knew, <laughs> I knew as soon as I heard that, <laughs> you know, I did the, I, I, I shot at the wrong person. But the point being is he told me, he said, after the fact, you know, when you get back and you do the debrief and whatever, he goes, the most humbling thing is you have to write a letter to that other pilot's wife and you have to read it out in front of the squadron. So he goes, you learn very quickly to be very, very careful in employing ordinance because it's a serious business. It is. It is a business where you can't be wrong. Right. Uh, yeah. Well, we say you, we say you can't be wrong, but you know, every once in a while, guys are wrong. Sure. Um, sure. It happens, but you know, ninety nine point nine percent of the time, guys are right. Yeah. They are building up enough situational awareness to where they're making the right decision. So that was a you know a very unique fight when you have friendly forces that are in that close proximity in an urban environment. Uh, a lot of times, you're going off of information that's three or four hours old. Right. To figure out, hey, where are these guys really? Especially with coalition partners that, you know, they're not on our radio frequencies. They may not even speak English out there. Sure. Right. Um, and we're relying on their chain of command to feed us information about where they're at. So, you know, it, it, it was tough. 
Yeah, I'm sure. And it actually made me think, you know, when when you spoke about um, the Koreans and you were saying how they make their decision kind of with their whole chain of command involved versus more of the individual or, or unit kind of control that's in the U.S. Or, or that you guys train to, it made me think, which is the better way? Because at a unit, you could probably make decisions quicker. But the flip side is, is that if the whole chain of command is involved, then everybody's on the same page, but probably not as dynamic. Yeah, that would be my assessment. You know, it's really hard to tell. Um, and I don't know if that's something that if the first real missiles are fired and the first real bombs are being dropped, if there would be some flexibility in that model, or if it's something that, Hey, it's training. So hmm. let's keep everybody involved. Let's keep the decisions with the group. Yeah, good point. But it's it's really different, and it's just it's part of the culture of being in South Korea. You know, yeah. is that I think that a lot of South Koreans are raised to to find a group that they can belong in and a group that they can contribute to. And the last thing they want to do is make a decision for that group that ends up being a bad decision. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it, very, very interesting. And, and you know, uh, the only reason I, I kind of backtracked to that was just you know when you mentioned that in coalitions that you have people that perhaps not speak the same language or might not be on the same frequencies. And that's got to be a huge, huge challenge. Like communications is everything. seems like if you don't have good comms, if you don't have good situational awareness, boy, you're behind the eight ball. Yeah. Have you heard the term minimum force, Uh, like who we need, what capabilities we need that are going to be the minimum amount of, you know, assets in order to execute a mission. Uh huh. I I have. So, Uh but in, in those situations, the translator is always part of the minimum force. <laughs> yeah. When the special forces guys are doing operations and they're going out with, you know, coalition partners, whether they're training Afghans or training Iraqis or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, that translator has to be there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Without that, yeah, you're, you've got one hand or maybe both hands tied behind your back. Right. Oh, yeah. wow. Hmm. So in flying in theater, uh, what strikes you about flying in inherent resolve, whether it be over Iraq or Syria? Um, and it sounds like when you were there, you had Mosul and you had um, Mosul and what's Raqqa. it? Raqqa. Yeah. And um, so those were really big, very important. I, I don't want to say battles, but areas, because those names were in the media a lot. And there you were flying over it. Yep, there we were. Um, I would say that the two things that struck me the most in Inherent Resolve mm-hmm. were the amount of territory that ISIS had been able to compile mm-hmm. um, and the fact that not in a normal uh, kind of counterterrorism role. Like, So a big difference in Afghanistan is that the Taliban doesn't really claim turf. You know, They're kind of mixed in with the population – uh, it's more of a network type of warfare. Right. ISIS had claimed a bunch of ground. So you had an area that you knew was kind of a hostile area, mm-hmm. um, which made it a lot more cool when you needed to be on your toes and when you could relax a little bit. Right. Uh, but it also made it really confusing when you're getting targets in the hostile area. And some of those targets are using civilians in that area as shields. Yeah. Um, that was another thing that really stuck out to me. It was one of my first missions in Mosul. Mm-hmm. Uh, had the unfortunate opportunity to watch a guy that was shooting at the friendly forces uh, with an AK held in one hand 
and he's got a child bundled up in his other arm. Oh man. And I'm thinking to myself, there's from an A10, there's nothing I can do in this situation. Right. You know, this is not an A10 problem. Right. Um, yeah. Which is always a tough pill to swallow. It's always tough to, to say, I don't have the right tools to deal with this problem that the friendly forces would like me to deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the end of the day, that's part of that cast expertise is knowing when, when you can't get it done on your own, when you need somebody else to step in and solve that problem. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Wow. You know, I, I can't imagine what it'd be like to see some of the things that, that you did through looking down or through the sensors that you have. Um, uh, it's got to be tough. Um, and, and so unfortunate, like, I mean, you know, it can, it can get into a greater discussion about why combat even happens in the first place, but you know, if it didn't, then you wouldn't have a job. So yeah, <laughs> I'm kind of glad that you, you, sorry, go ahead. When we kind of just embrace the fact that humans are going to fight, uh, it makes it a lot easier to have the job and know that I'm not there to necessarily you know, go kill everybody and break everything from the other side. I'm there to protect my friendly forces. And if there are people that are threatening those friendly forces, if there are people that want to kill them, like I don't have any issues sleeping at night by taking care of that problem for them. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's the right way to look at it. You know, it's, you know, you're going in hopefully with some, some moral high ground, but also, um, you know, knowing that you're looking after your own folks and, and protecting them and, um, yeah, and you have to do what you got to do. Um, yep. In the context of combat, um, you mentioned that you had a whole myriad of weapons available to you. What did you find were the weapons that were most effective and most perhaps used in that type of conflict? So with the big urban fights, uh, the weapons that we used the most were the 500-pound class GPS-guided munitions. Okay. So GB-38s uh, were very prevalent because you can put them on a delay fuse so you can dig them into a couple floors of a building and set them off in a particular floor. Um, well, on the rare occasion that an entire building was just nothing but bad guys, you know, the 2000 pound class mm-hmm. GPS guided munitions were great. Uh, cause you could dig all the way down to the first story and just drop the whole building. Mm-hmm. Um, probably the most important weapon that was developed recently was the AGR 20, which is our laser guided high explosive rocket. Okay. Um, I would guess it probably has the blast of around like if you were to tape three or four hand grenades together. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a very small boom, but it is hyper accurate. So a lot of times when we're having to hit somebody that's, you know, shooting around the corner of a building in the streets and we don't know what's in the building, uh, but we know that this guy needs to go. The laser guided rocket was the easy answer. Uh, I mean, you could you can shoot them from far enough away that nobody can hear you. Nobody knows they're coming. And they're so accurate with the laser guidance that as long as you can keep the guy in the targeting pod, you can get him. Wow. Um, so that was a huge increase in capability with the laser guided rockets. Um, outside of the cities, we did a lot of like financial type of missions. So ISIS was using a bunch of the oil fields in Syria. Hmm. Uh, and they were using that oil sales to fund their terrorist operations. Right. So a lot of times if there wasn't a lot going on in the cities – we would get sent out to the oil fields and that's where the 30 millimeter was just awesome. <laughs> you know, with 1150 rounds and I only had to put about a hundred of them on an oil still to make it go boom. 
I could go out there and take out 11 oil stills and still be carrying all my bombs and carrying all my rockets into the fight. Um, the, the Maverick missiles became interesting, uh, as ISIS started using construction equipment to build defensive fighting positions to shore up their defenses in the cities. So as they were building up those defenses, the, the really the best weapon to deal with construction equipment was the Maverick missile. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of like a tank, you know? Yeah. Right. right. <laughs> big, forward thing. Uh, the Maverick missiles were great at knocking those engine compartments out. Um, but that was, that was probably, I would say if I had to pick like the weapon that influenced the fights in the cities, the most mm-hmm. probably would be the 500 pound class bombs. Um, the weapon that you felt the best about using was the AGR 20 laser guided rocket. Wow. Cause it was almost no collateral damage. And when you were using it, you knew exactly who was going away. Right. Right. And precision is key, right? That's why not many people are dropping dumb bombs anymore. That's right. Yeah. Precision is key. Yeah. Um, there were also some low collateral bombs that we were carrying that were pretty interesting. Oh, yeah? Um, yeah. So we had some 500-pound class weapons that were low collateral. Uh, if you look up the GBU-38 version 4 and the GBU-38 version 5, okay. you can find information on bombs that instead of having a steel casing, they've got a carbon fiber casing, so it eliminates a lot of the frag. Oh, right. You end up mostly with just the blast. Yep. Uh, and even then, they reduced the blast on those weapons. So, you know, if you put those into a room, the people in that room would go away. But mm-hmm. the people in the next room over would probably be all right. You know, ears ringing. Mm-hmm. They might be hurting a little bit, but they'd run away. Wow. That's cool. And obviously, the whole goal here is that you're in an urban environment, but you don't advance your cause if you cause innocent civilians to be injured or killed. And so, and so I think that's the biggest thing is that, you know, I think early on people were saying, oh, you know, there's so many civilians killed, et cetera, et cetera. But, um, you know, in all the journalism that I've done uh, over the past, you know, 15 years, I've never once heard any coalition member or nation just be indiscriminate. You know, it's always deliberate targeting. Yep. It always is. And typically when there are civilian casualties, it's like the, the one in a million that you just can't foresee. Yeah. Um, you know, you're, when you're going to put a bomb or a Maverick on a vehicle borne IED that's driving up the street towards the friendlies and then somebody walks out of their house to see what's going on and that thing gets hit right in front of them. You just can't, you can't predict it. There's no way to account for it. Um, and that makes it really hard. There were some guys that we had uh, that came back from some bad situations that, you know, to this day, they are wondering what they could have done differently. And kind of one of the leadership challenges there is to explain to them that they did everything right. Mm-hmm. That sometimes things that you can't account for are going to happen. Um, and you, you kind of have to learn from it, really criticize yourself to see if there was something you could do differently. And if there wasn't, then you got to try to move on. Right. Uh, I think that's key, what you said there about trying to analyze it and then try to move on. I think it, perhaps easier said than done if if it's you that pulled the trigger. But um, I guess part of training, and, and that's also part of squadron support and colleague support is, you know, be like, yeah, if you did everything right, hey, you know, you just couldn't have foreseen this. Yep. And 
uh, luckily the, the forces are coming up with a lot more additional resources too, on top of, you know, fighter squadron is always tight knit. We're always going to be looking out for each other, mm -hmm. but the chaplain corps is always out there with us when we're deployed. Um, they always have the MWR facilities available for guys to relax. Uh, and now they're starting to bring in even the physical therapists and other kinds of things to help people get through whatever they're dealing with, uh, which has been a nice improvement for quality of life and helping out with some of those tougher issues. Yeah. Oh, that's nice to hear. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that's happening. Um, for this whole time, you were staging out of Inserlik, right? Yeah. Yeah. What was that like operating out of Turkey? And, you know, I've never been to that base, but it's very, very well located for that, it, for that particular fight. I call it the best deployment you could ever have. Oh. Uh, oh, yeah? <laughs> so, so because we weren't actually in one of the CENTCOM bases, mm -hmm. Uh, general order number one was not in effect. So yeah. after an eight hour mission, uh, you're tired, you may have some things on your mind. Uh, you could go out and we had, um, uh, how one of the houses that the lieutenants lived in out in the driveway, we were able to set up a fire pit, uh, and we could go to the class six and we could get beers, you know, soft drinks, waters, whatever, you know, they had a bowling alley. Oh, wow. So if guys needed to blow up steam in their free time, they could go to the bowling alley roll the rock for a little bit and just do something other than combat. Yeah. Um, and that helped a lot. I'm sure I think that uh, that really prevented a lot of um, what you'll typically hear is that guys say a three month deployment is perfect okay. uh, because you get to the first month, everybody's kind of trying to figure it out. And then you're operating at a high level for two more months. Uh, and then you avoid month four, which is when people start getting in each other's chili about stuff. <laughs> Right. Okay. Gotcha. <laughs> I think that comes from uh, when guys are, you know, when you're going to Kandahar or Bagram, uh, you just don't have that time to go do your own personal life stuff. You know, you don't have that time to kick back and go relax around a fire or go to a bowling alley. Right. Um, you're pretty much just in the combat mindset the entire time. And uh, the only offshoot from that is, spending time at the chow hall with folks. So, you know, if somebody rubs somebody the wrong way, they get to see them again for, you know, five more months after <laughs> that first month. Right. Um, but we were able to avoid all that at Interlick. There weren't really any big interpersonal problems in the squadron. And I credit a lot of it to the, the environment there at the base it was just super nice. Uh, a good gym where guys were getting a lot of stress out by working out. Um, and then a lot of amenities. They even had a golf course. I think it was a nine hole golf course there that a couple awesome. of folks were able to get out there and play some golf. Awesome. Uh, Sounds like a great place to be. And, and so it, in terms of housing, you were actually living on base though. Yep. Yeah. We were on base. Uh, and I think they were, I don't know if they were out of dorms or what, but the base housing was pretty much emptied out because okay. I think it was shortly after they had gotten all the families out of Turkey. Mm. Um, so we were in base housing. So it'd be like three people sharing a, a house. Wow. That's uh, awesome. Yeah. We had our own little section of the neighborhood. Bulldogs <laughs> were holed up running that little portion of the neighborhood in our free time. The bulldogs were holed up. That's awesome. <laughs> oh, man. Well, now, is there anything else, you know, before we kind of wrap up that combat side of your experience in theater? Um, I don't know if there was any one particular mission that stands out in your mind that you're particularly proud of. But I, I do actually recall um, that you and I had a very brief chat about um, 
the significance of the A-10, even if you don't drop one bomb or fire one bullet. Yep. And I think that's something we're saying, just the psychological aspect of the A-10 in theater and overhead of troops that you're supporting. Yeah, I can um, I can give you a great example from my next deployment in Afghanistan. Okay. Um, so depending on the mission, when the operators are going out to either clear an area or try to capture a high-level target from the Taliban or whatever, mm-hmm. some missions, they were going out to start a fight and try and take some Taliban off the battlefield in that area. Mm-hmm. Um, some missions, they were going out to not have a fight. They just wanted to go in, clear through the village, uh, and kind of shake hands, say hello, let people know that the coalition is there to help. Um, when they were trying to not start a fight, the beauty of the A-10 and kind of the iconic aircraft that it is, is that I would show up 30 minutes prior and just by flying low and close to that town, I could watch people leave. (laughs) (laughs) I knew who was leaving. (laughs) Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So I would always contact the the JTAC that I was going to work with that night, say, hey, are you guys looking for a fight? Do you want me to stay quiet, stay high, stay out? Are you wanting to get in there and have this be a fairly routine clear through? Um, and based on what the ground commander wanted, if he said routine clear through, I would offer up, Hey, let me fly in there about 30 minutes before you get on station. Mm-hmm. Let me get low. Let me kind of show people that the a 10s here and I'll keep you posted on vehicles and people that I'm able to track when they start leaving town. Right. Uh, and that's a kind of a unique capability of being able to get down there where, you know, I'm in the titanium bathtub. So if they want to shoot dishkas or AK 47s at me, like, I don't really care. Yeah. It's not going to affect my aircraft. Um, so exposing myself to that little bit of tiny, you know, 0.1% chance that a bullet hits my titanium bathtub to help get the, you know, five to 10 insurgents out of town before my friendly forces show up, mm-hmm. uh, that made, made a lot more sense to do it that way. Um, and then some of the additional capabilities and the other story I wanted to tell you about was the targeting pod, uh, coming onto the A10C with the multifunction displays is a huge capability. Hmm. Um, that obviously most of the fighters now are carrying it around, uh, but paired with the helmet mounting queuing system that we have, uh, I was supporting a convoy that on their way out to their op area had hit an IED and they had taken a lot of contact. Uh, some of my friends had actually supported them during a, an evacuation of their wounded personnel uh, and had taken out a couple of Taliban fighters along their route. They went out and did their operation for about four days and I was supporting them on their way back. Okay. Uh, at that point, the Taliban guys know where they're headed back to. They're able to get the IED out in front of them on the way out. Mm-hmm. They're going to know the route back to, uh, right. and there was only one main road. So my priority task was to scan the road out in front of them and look for any possible places that an IED could be. So I offset a couple miles from the road, and I was using the helmet mounting QE system to get my targeting pod onto different things that I was seeing over the rail, and I was able to find a bunch of these drainage ditches that run under the road. So every time the friendly forces got about a half mile to a mile from one of these drainage ditches, I would just let the JTAC know, Hey, you got a drainage ditch. It's about three fourths of a mile out in front of you. Let me know when you want me to put the IR pointer on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and with his MVGs, I can turn on the IR pointer and he can get a little blinking spot on the ground. It's kind of an area, you know, 20 to 30 foot area on the ground okay. that now he can send out the EOD guys. And on the way back to their base, 
they went into probably 30 drainage ditches and they pulled out 12 IEDs and disarmed them. Wow. Uh, and that's one where I didn't fire a single bullet, didn't drop a single bomb, but it's one of the missions that I look back at and I go, boy, I'm glad I was out there to help these guys in a kind of non-standard way. Um, and the A-10C with the helmet mounted QE system and the targeting pod really enabled me to do that. Uh, but that's all part of the, again, the CAS expertise is weighing what's the highest risk to the friendly force and kind of prioritizing our time on that. And based on everything else that had gone on, I figured those IEDs were the best thing I could do is try and see where could these things be? How can I get the friendly forces to stop and actually, you know, get out, take a look. Um, and it worked out. So they all made it back, no casualties on the return. And that was a, a big highlight for me. That was in Afghanistan back in 2019. Wow. That is awesome, Kelso. Um, I have to ask this question, and I'm not trying to be controversial in asking it, but if you were in a jet that was higher up, uh, it all depends on the sensors. Like if you've got a, a really big eye, then in theory, you know, you could be higher up and be able to see the same stuff. So, you know, I get that. But um, is there value being down low in the cast fight? Yeah. One of the biggest differences that I uh, have noticed is that, you know, even with the targeting pod, it's only so good at different ranges, you know, sure. let's say I, if I want to, if I want to be able to tell a vehicle from a tank, you know, I have to get into a certain range to be able to break that out. Um, if I want to be able to tell a person uh, from a person with a gun, right. that is also a very different range that I have to be at. So I think one of the big benefits is the, the comfort that the A-10 pilots have in being at lower altitudes. And the fact that, like I said before, like if I take a 5.56 five, round or if I take a 12.7 mil, my airplane is going to get home just fine. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're probably going to put some speed tape over it and it'll fly the next day. Right. Um, that's a big difference when you're talking about some other aircraft and when you talk about sensitive skins uh, or, you know, fuel cells that don't, have the self-sealing foam like ours have, um, you know, our engines are even firewalled off. So if an engine catches on fire, I could let it burn until it falls off the airplane. Oh, wow. Um, and I can make it back on one engine. So right. there's a lot of advantages to all the redundancy and all the armor. And most of them are kind of just giving the A-10 pilot the comfort to go low mm -hmm. and the comfort to do things at those lower altitudes. Um, the speed is a factor that I think probably played more of a role in that one, uh, because I'm going slow enough that I can kind of bob and weave back and forth along this road and stay close to the friendly forces while doing a couple minutes of targeting pod scanning. Mm -hmm. You know, that couple minutes in a faster airplane, I'm going to go way out in front of them. Right. Uh, and, right. and then I have to go a couple minutes back. Um, so I can stay in range to look at things for a longer period of time. Uh, and it's, it's all time management in a fighter aircraft of, you know, I roll out, I'm going this direction. I know that I've got six miles of restricted operating zone left. So in an A-10, I've got a minute and 20 seconds. Mm -hmm. Uh, if I'm in a, if I'm in an F-16, that six miles might only be like 50 seconds. Right. Right. So I can do some more head down tasks while I've got the autopilot on and I'm just cruising in a certain direction. Sure. Um, 
I don't think Afghanistan would have stopped those guys from going low. Um, I think a strike eagle or a viper probably could have done the same thing for finding those drainage ditches, but I don't know that their training would have taught them to look for those ditches. Right. That's another kind of interesting factor of it is that because my 100%, well, I'll call it my 90% focus is on close air support. Mm-hmm. One of the things that we got in our in brief was like the squadron weapons officer that was out there previous pulled me aside when I got there and he goes, Hey, here's the visual identification for all these different things. You know, if you're supporting a convoy, here's all the things you need to be looking for. Here's how you can identify potential IED locations. Um, here's what disturbed earth looks like through our targeting pod. Mm. Uh, so there's a lot of expertise in the, in the community, um, that I think it's good that some of those guys are going to F 35s, um, because they'll be able to carry that expertise with them. Mm-hmm. Sure. But I, it's just the, a matter of like when your only mission in a combat environment is close air support and you're not having to worry about doing, you know, counter air caps and other stuff. I just have more time to invest in studying up on all the things I need to know. Right. Yeah, it, it's it's a really good point. And, you know, who knows if the F-35 community will, will end up going kind of like the F-16 community did where, you know, they've got wild weasel specialists and they've got air-to-air squadrons and they've got the multi-role. Closer to the yeah, closer, yeah. So who knows? Like, I mean, I guess that's still to be determined, but um, for sure. I think if if your one task, like in the A-10, your one primary task is close air support, then you become experts at it. I was going to say specialists, yeah. but you are experts. Right. That's what we tell our guys, too, is when they're going through the pipeline, you know, once they hit four-ship flight lead, mm-hmm. when they check into a close air support stack with other aircraft, they are probably the most highly trained close air support asset in that stack. Yeah. A lot of cases that is to include the controller on the ground. Right. They probably have more experience than the controller on the ground does. Yeah. Uh, not always true, but in a lot of cases, it probably is. Sure. So, you know, there's the discussion about the A-10 that comes up all the time about, oh, you know, how long is it going to be around for? And the Air Force wants to kill it and this and that. Um, what is the status of the A-10 currently? Because I know that half, I, I think if if I remember correctly, half the fleet was re-winged, but I think all of them are going to be re-winged. And I think that process is ongoing. But um, if I were to say to you, um, I'm not saying that this is what you are recommending or anything like that. This is just your observations and thoughts. Um, what would future-proof the A-10? Oh, Boy, you're asking a great, great question. We're um, we're looking at that right now. You're right about the rewinging. We're getting all of the wings redone so we get some new, fresh life on the jets. Mm-hmm. Um, but based on the uh, NDAA and kind of the NDS, looking at how do we play a part in the next big fight? What do we need to do in terms of equipment systems? Uh, so um, you may not know this, but we're – we're not actually a Link 16 equipped aircraft. We have the Situational Awareness Data Link. Originally, that was going to be the program of record for the Army. Right, the um, saddle, right. <laughs> but it kind of fell through on the Army side. <laughs> and like some select Air Force birds got it. So it ended up being all the combat search and rescue birds have Situational Awareness Data Link. Okay. So when I'm working with HH-60s and HC-130s, we can run our own little Data Link air key. Uh, but when I want to get on link 16, I need a gateway. So I need either an airborne asset or a ground-based system 
that basically takes situational awareness data link information, mm-hmm. translates it into link 16 information. And then, you know, I have probably 50% of the capability of link 16. Uh, and then same thing, link 16 information comes into that gateway and it gets piped out as saddle information. Um, and I probably get 50% of what the link 16 guys are capable of publishing. Okay. Um, so link 16, that's one of the things we've been pushing for. Our central computer is super duper old and it struggles to deal with high quantities of information. Mm-hmm. So to, to prepare for link 16 and to prepare for additional systems to hang on the wings, uh, we're trying to get a high resolution display system that has some processing power behind it. Um, which that will help us with when we start looking at next generation targeting pods going up to, I think they're going up to 2k resolution. Uh, or it might be 4K, you know, now I'll be able to get much higher fidelity Mm -hmm. out of that targeting quad and onto a bigger screen so that I can break things out more easily in the cockpit Mm -hmm. from longer ranges. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we're also exploring other ideas, you know, how do we get a synthetic aperture radar pod that we can hang on the airplane so that when we want to go through the weather to find targets, we can do that rather than having to drop below it and go look with our eyeballs or look with a targeting pod. You know, I'd rather be able to use some kind of a radar-based solution to do that that would be very uh, cool. yeah and then uh one of the big ones too is so as with all things military right standoff is king and being able to carry longer range weapons is always something that everybody's looking to do you know the army's got their program to get longer range for their artillery and their rockets uh the navy's got programs trying to get longer fires capabilities mm-hmm. you know we're getting the um i don't know if you've seen any unclassed articles on the next generation uh medium range air to air missile increased ranges right everybody's always trying to shoot each other from further away right yeah so we're trying to incorporate that too so that we can stand off from tactical sams and still be able to affect targets so getting small diameter bombs mm-hmm. um we're exploring other options for different types of missiles. Uh, and then we've also got um, some new rockets that we're looking at. So they took that same concept, that AGR-20 that I told you about, the mm-hmm. laser-guided rocket. Yep. Uh, they took that same concept, and now they're making one that's got some armor penetration capabilities. So ah. uh, that's a huge boost because we can shoot those things from pretty far away. Uh, and now if I can not only kill people with them but also be able to kill vehicles, that's just one more kind of notch to hang on the belt. Uh, totally. I was going to ask at the time for the AGR-20, how many in a, a rocket pod? Seven in a pod. Okay. And then, um, so have you seen the triple ejector racks where you can carry yeah. like three bombs on one station? Yep. Well, I can put a rocket pod on those triple ejector racks too. So awesome. I could use one station and tote around 21 of those babies. Um, and I can put those triple ejector racks on like four different stations. So... <laughs> You know, oh man, well, okay, what would that do with drag though? It'd be pretty draggy, It'd be about the same as carrying bombs around, but they're lighter. Okay, <laughs> oh, well, then hey, then it's a win win. Yeah, it is. <laughs> That's um, awesome. Yeah, we've talked about all kinds of hilarious stuff. Somebody said it's like we can carry like over a hundred of those rockets at a time on one aircraft. Holy smokes, <laughs> you got to do it just for yeah. the sake of saying we did it, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just yeah. got to get a picture of that. <laughs> Maybe on my finish flight at Nellis, I'll take a bunch of Willie Peets out. I'll have like a hundred Willie Peets. You should. You should. <laughs> um, as you were talking, one question that I didn't ask, and that is A-10s doing work with RPAs. Like, I mean, you talked about it in a way already, but um, I know there's more of this focus on manned unmanned teaming. Where is that vis-a-vis the A-10? 
Boy, I mean, I was working with an MQ-9 in almost every stack I was in in Afghanistan, and um, it wasn't necessarily like the unmanned teaming that they're talking about now with, I think it's the XQ-58, you know, the little Valkyrie right. uh, loyal wingman drone. Right. But it, it's working with other platforms in close air support and knowing the capabilities they can bring to bear. So if I, you know, a lot of times the A-10 guy in the stack has the, the bigger perspective because I've got the, the big window. I'm looking out over the rail a lot. Um, the MQ-9s a lot of times are looking through the soda straw uh, and doing more positive ID of things, uh, or looking for people in windows and all kinds of crazy stuff that I can't do with my targeting pod. Mm -hmm. So the teaming that really comes into play is when I see, you know, a vehicle driving into town over the rail, I can quickly get my targeting pod there with my helmet mounted queuing system. And if that vehicle stops and people get out very quickly, I can pass a point digitally to the MQ nine guys and ask them to take a look. And now with their sensor, which is a lot better than mine, uh, they might be able to positively ID, you know, enemy versus civilian um, or woman versus man. You know, some mm -hmm. of the things that are hard for me to do from an A-10 cockpit, mm -hmm. they can do a little better with their full color display on their big screen and their connex. Right. Um, so that's that's probably some of the biggest teaming stuff. And then, you know, when they find a target, it's a lot cheaper for me to put 100 rounds of 30 mil on it than it is to shoot it with a Hellfire. Um and it helps them conserve ordnance. So there's a lot of teamwork that goes into it and making sure that we're picking the right target weapon pairings uh, and we're using the sensors for what they're good at. Um, you know, it's kind of like I give the point guard center example mm -hmm. of, you know, if you want somebody to, to hold it down in the middle of the floor, you don't send your point guard in to guard shack. <laughs> right. <laughs> Same yeah. thing, like, if the enemy tank battalion is attacking, you're not going to leave one MQ-9 there. Uh, but that one MQ-9 might be able to find a lot of those vehicles and hand them off to the guys that have a ton of weapons. Right. That's the big thing on the teaming side, and that's uh, that gets into a lot of what we teach here at the weapon schools, how to use the assets to their best capability Okay. cover each other's suits. Yeah, yeah, no, cool. That makes a lot of sense. I, I just wasn't sure if there's any initiatives underway to do any of that kind of newer stuff where you are, as an A-10 pilot, controlling any type of, you know, loyal wingman type uh, aircraft. And, and, you know, I say loyal wingman in a very loose way. I, I don't know if there's any kind of pathway forward where that is being looked at or, or considered. Uh, not that I know of, but I am not much into the developmental test world. So right. it's possible and I just don't know about it. Mm -hmm. um, but again, not to my knowledge. Cool. Well, you answered the question. So... So we're talking about systems there, but um, what about the platform itself? You know, people have often talked about the the motors on the uh, Warthog. Yeah, that's been a huge conversation. Um, it's just really hard to get that much money. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So it's kind of funny. The TF-34 engines that we have, mm -hmm. the commercial airlines back in the 90s made an upgraded variant of them. I, I thought so. Uh, if I tried to quote you the increased thrust and the increased efficiency, I would just be lying to you or making something up. Sure. But they're much better engines. Um, the issue, I think, uh, is partially in that the mounts that we have. So we're kind of unique in that our engines are hanging off of like pylons that come off the fuselage, right? Right. So I think if we wanted to get those increased thrust engines, we have to increase the capability of those mounts as well. Ah, uh, okay. 
So there's a lot that would go into it. Um, and there's, you know, we're always talking about it. And then at the end of the day, people go, well, what's the requirement? Like, I don't know. I just want to be able to get back to altitude faster. You know, I want to be mm-hmm. able to go further with using less gas. Right. Uh, but I can't tangibly say like, well, I can kill this many more tanks in 10 minutes. Right. Right. I guess that's the, that's the thing. And then, yeah, add that problem with the cost and yeah. That's if what... it's between getting Link 16 and getting new engines, I'm like, give me Link 16 first. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> there's, all, there's all these other things that I need before I would want to get new engines. Yeah, yeah. You know, the the other thing I think about uh, future-proofing, as I am coining it in air quotes here, it is clear to me that all of the releases and, and the discussions that come out is talking about near-peer competitors and reorienting towards that type of fight. So in that case, you know, it starts speaking again to the roles that the A-10 was originally designed for, you know, anti-tank and anti-armor and that that type of thing. So that was the, the original kind of mandate for the A-10. But that also speaks to um, the other catchphrases, which are, you know, permissive and denied environments. Mm-hmm. As, as an A-10 pilot, are you at all worried about denied environments. I, I guess you, any pilot would be worried about it, but um, how do you feel about the denied environment fight in the context of being an A-10 pilot? Well, I feel like as an A-10 pilot, I probably won't be the guy there on night one. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. Uh, yeah. And that's, that's fine. Like I yeah. know that my job is to, to deal with the fielded forces. You know, I'm out there to go pound whatever ground forces are out there. And that's, the Air Force has bigger problems than the fielded forces on night one for a denied environment type of enemy. Mm-hmm. Um, so I view it from the lens of how far into this denied environment can I get early on? Uh, and if you think about it, you know, when you start talking about enemy surface air missiles that go hundreds of miles, mm-hmm. most of those are still relying on radar line of sight. And the Earth does curve. Right. Uh, <laughs> right. So, Apologies to any flat earth listeners out there, but it's scientifically proven in the A-10 community that those radars can't see me at certain altitudes and certain ranges away. Yeah. Uh, so that's the, that would be one of the big ones to look at is, you know, without a specific case to talk about planning against, mm-hmm. it's hard to say like, well, yeah, I can get into a denied environment. Like, am I going to go fly directly on top of an SA-21? Probably not. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, but if we're causing the enemy enough problems from other places and enough people are already at higher altitudes running amok, you know, the four ship of A-10s at a lower altitude is probably not very appetizing for them to want to shoot at at that point. Mm-hmm. And we, we may be able to pick off some of the lower priority things for the Air Force early on in those big fights. But it's really hard to tell without doing a specific kind of case study. Sure. Yeah. It all depends on the context, for sure. The one thing we haven't really talked about, and I'm not really going to go there because I know it gets into sensitive areas, is just electronic warfare. You know, you guys also carry jamming pods and what have you. So, you know, I think it's usually yeah. on the on the far outer station on the wing, and um, if memory serves. Yep. But as that technology advances, it just gives you more capability to kind of operate in different regimes. Yeah, that's one thing we need to get kind of the next generation of electronic countermeasure pod. Mm -hmm. Um, 
you know, the LQ 131 and the LQ 184, that's like, I think the serial numbers on those are about the same as the tail numbers on our airplanes. It's like 79 to 81, <laughs> you know, somewhere around there. Yeah. So it would be really nice to take some of the new technology and ECM and get that loaded on the airplane. But again, it's all funding and priorities. So yeah. do I want the new ECM pod before I want a high-res display? No. Do I want it before I want a SAR pod that can see targets through the weather? No. Right. Um, and part of that too is as an A-10 guy, I have a lot of faith in my pointier and faster nosed brothers and sisters out there because I have to, you know, I'm not going to go out and target the SA-21. I'm not going to go out there and target the enemy's headquarters in some capital city. Right. Um, but there's going to be other fighters that may do that, you know, fighters and bombers, they're going in there to do those things. And at some point we may get to some level of air superiority that, Hey, now it's fielded forces time, bring out the hogs and let's go to town. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Or both. All right. So I think I know the answer to this question before I ask it, but I'm going to ask it anyways. So you also carry AIM nines. Is there any thoughts of kind of wanting to increase that to an AIM nine next capability or? Yeah. I mean, I would love to have an AMRAM. Right? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say AMRAM, but then I'm like, man, don't be too ambitious. <laughs> yeah. I would love to have a radar and an AMRAM, but then I have to train to all that stuff. Right. Uh, the M9X is the one that I, I would love to be able to replace the Mike 9 with the 9X. Mm -hmm. um, but that's another one that we look at all the other priorities we have. And if we're really focused on air-to-ground missions, yeah, we have to prioritize air-to-ground technology first. Right. Yes, indeed. Indeed. That's the, that's the big problem. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. So, Kelso, you know, we've covered a lot, and, and I've thoroughly enjoyed this. Is there anything in our discussion about the A-10C and about your experience, your perspective, that you think is important to cover? Because I want this to be where people who are interested in the U.S. Air Force and in the A-10C or the A-10, you know, writ large, are happy that they listen to this chat and maybe learn something new. Um, I think the only thing I'll leave you with, there are kind of two mantras in the A-10 community that are extremely important to how we raise our pilots and how we train them and keep their focus. The first one is that it's all about the 18-year-old with a rifle. And I'm sure you've heard that from Soup or somebody else in the A-10 community. But everything we do is about protecting our friendly forces on the ground. Mm -hmm. um, and that is, it's baked in to the A-10 pilots at the start of their training and we only build on that throughout their career. Uh, the last piece that I'll leave you with, uh, and this is kind of my my plug for the A-10, and it's a common one you'll see in A-10 bars, is you can go out and kill all the MiGs you want, but if you come back, land, and the enemy tank commander is having a beer in your bar, brother, you've lost the war. <laughs> yeah. So that, that's another one that, uh, again... We specialize in air-to-ground missions, uh, and we specialize in going out and picking up our isolated brothers and sisters, and you'll see that as the big point of pride in the A-10 community. So I've also thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. It's good to reflect back on some of the moments throughout my career up to this point, uh, and hopefully, Jody, we can get you out here on the range with our JTACs so you can see us doing the job in person. Oh, I would love that, Kelso. I, it would be an honor. And, you know, the pleasure has been mine. I've thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed chatting with you. And I greatly appreciate your time. This has been fun. Um, hope you had a good time, too, going down memory lane a little bit with me. And uh, I just thank you so much. Thanks, Joey. And 
Attack. Yes. <laughs> Attack. Upside down, too. <laughs> yeah, however you need to. Right. <laughs> Ridge Kelso Flick. Appreciate it. No problem. See ya. See you. Bye-bye. The views and opinions expressed in this presentation are solely those of the participants. This podcast is copyright and all rights are reserved. No portion may be reproduced or used in any manner without the express written permission of the publisher who can be reached at goboldthepodcast at gmail.com. The music on this podcast is Parasail by Silent Partner. <laughs>